Our scripture reading this morning is 1 John 3, verses 10 through 18. That reading may be found on page 1022 of the Pew Bible. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Lord, we thank you for our joy. We thank you for the fact that you have ordained all that comes to pass and that we can take refuge in the fact that you're right now with us and you're moving us forward in our love for one another. Use this time, use this service as you already have to minister your grace to us that we might love one another fervently from the heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. That is, the more familiar, the easier to take something or someone for granted and even feel contempt. Now, this can happen in any relationship. It can happen in marriage. It can certainly happen in the church. Love for one another can become increasingly difficult with increasing familiarity. As the old limerick says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. So what's to be done? Perhaps your love for the body of Christ is still strong and vibrant, even growing in strength and zeal. On the other hand, Perhaps your love for your fellow believers has cooled down a bit, even begun to grow cold, become a little ho-hum. Maybe your desire to lay down your life for your fellow Christians here at Christ Memorial Church just doesn't have the punch it once had. In a sense, you've sort of moved on. There's other interests driving your life, other passions like kids or grandkids, jobs or hobbies, that have higher interest and greater heart attachment than loving the members of this church. So what's to be done? 
How can we revitalize our love for, our one, an- for one another in Christ, which proves our love for God and fulfills His law? How can we do that? Let me suggest that we can do that by considering the incomparable transcendence of love itself, specifically, two things, specifically by observing its beauty, which is seen in Christ and in His church, and by rehearsing its necessity for securing the well-being of the church and of our very souls. This morning, let's ask God to use His Word to revive us, that we might excel still more in loving one another. And let's begin by turning to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Very short verse, John 10 and verse 11. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, shepherds take care of sheep, don't they? making sure they are rested and fed in green pastures and that they're watered in safe, still waters. And a good shepherd is willing to risk his life in order to protect the sheep from any danger, comforting them with his rod and with his staff. Jesus Christ is the ultimate good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep, the elect, whom the Father gave him to save. His death on the cross was not merely heroic. It was salvific. And here's what it did. Now remember, you and I were evil people. God had created us for himself to be his representative, to live according to his law, but we rebelled. In Adam, we said no to his law, no to his authority, no to being his representative and image bearer. And like stupid, stubborn sheep, We went our own way. But there was a consequence. Just as he had warned, death, removal from God's presence, which the Bible ultimately describes as hell, was the penalty, the wage that sin justly earns. Now, we use the word hell in our common vernacular. I'm hoping you don't use it too often. But we use it to describe an awful experience. We might say that was hell, or she went through hell. But hell in the Bible, we could say, is the hell of hells. Nothing could be worse, no pain could be greater, no existence more miserable, no suffering more unimaginable. Scripture employs harrowing imagery to describe hell. Things like outer darkness, unbroken weeping, and gnashing of teeth, eternal, unspeakable suffering in a lake of fire. Hell is eternal death. It's to be cut off from God's lovely, life-giving presence forever. And physical death is but a token of that eternal death. 
So you and I died spiritually and were sentenced to hell when we sinned in Adam. Right now, outside of Christ, we sit on death row awaiting our just sentence without hope and without God in the world. But God is rich in mercy. So what did he do? What did he do to address that awful scenario? He sent his only eternally divine son to bear the guilt, shame, and consequence of our rebellion. He transferred to Jesus all the sin that we had committed, making him the sin bearer for his people, and then he punished him as our scapegoat with the death that we deserved. But he rose on the third day. He was delivered up for our iniquities. He was raised up for our justification. And the moment a sinner believes... He is forgiven. He is justified. Yesterday during the golf scramble, things got a little slow and we got a chance. Larry and I, Larry Reynolds and I were together and we got a chance to talk to our two Catholic friends. And uh, while we were just waiting, I asked him, I said, would you guys be interested in knowing the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism? And one of the guys said, a, a fairly devout Catholic, he said, I would love to hear that. I've always wondered. And one of the things that I said is the moment the sinner believes he is justified, he is forgiven, he's not just hoping it all works out, that he does enough, and then we'll get all things cleaned up in purgatory. I said, no, the moment he believes he is forgiven, he is justified. That's right. No more shame. No more guilt. No purgatory for purification. By faith alone in Christ, God declares us pure. He declares us clean. He declares us free from sin's penalty. And that makes us free from sin's power. And He promises by the down payment of His own Spirit that when Christ returns, we shall be forever free from sin's presence. That's what God did. And all this is based solely on our faith in the work of this good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? Well, you know the answer, John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. He did it for love. A little chorus we sang in college, I learned in college, still speaks to me. Why? Why did he love me, a sinner undone? Why? Tell me, why should he care? I've done nothing to merit his love. Why? Tell me, why should he care? All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin, fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. He did it for love. Christ's sacrifice for us is a very embodiment of love, of Christ's love and of the Father's love. The Scripture says that one would hardly die for a righteous man, but God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... 
Christ died for us. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Now when we come to Christ, the Bible says that God sheds that love abroad in our hearts through His Spirit. And that love shows up in the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A familiar passage. Let me read just verses 4 to 6. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 6. The apostle says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Let's just stop right there. When God moves in our hearts, calls us to himself, and we believe the blessed gospel, this love, this love of Christ, this love that God has shown to us, is shed abroad in our hearts through His Spirit. And it shows up in the church and it looks like this, what we just read. I think that first phrase in verse 4, patience and kindness, is a little bit of a topical phrase. I think you can generalize and say this love is first and foremost patient and kind. By the way, that's not what they were doing in the Corinthian church. They were not being patient and kind with one another. But I think that's kind of the outline for the whole passage. And I have it on good authority that that's a decent interpretation because Mark Dever calls patience a superpower. I think it is. We don't come by it naturally, do we? And I want to ask you, is there anything sweeter or more beautiful than experiencing somebody's patience and somebody's kindness, especially when you're being a real stinker? Is there anything sweeter than that? Is there anything more beautiful? And especially when the one doling out the patience and kindness is suffering great hardship themselves. I don't know about you, that just kind of melts my heart. And I think that's what was going on in Corinth. They weren't responding that way. They weren't responding like the Lord Jesus who said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is that not the quintessential expression 
of patience and kindness. But let's drill down a little bit. Practically, what does it mean to treat others in the church with patience and kindness? The great apostle takes a negative tack to explain what patience and kindness, which I think is his summary of love here, what it uh, does not look like in verses 4 to 6. And he says it doesn't look like three things. It doesn't look like selfishness. It doesn't look like pride. And it doesn't look like friendliness toward evil. We might say tolerance toward evil in our brothers. So first, it doesn't act proudly. He says love does not envy or boast. Remember the Corinthians were boasting in various teachers. They were boasting in their spirituality. But love is humble, boasting only in the Lord. And it's not arrogant or puffed up, the old King James says. The Corinthians were very puffed up by their knowledge, by their spirituality. They had the diversity of the gifts, and they had the gifts in abundance. But love is lowly and humble like a servant. Second, love does not act selfishly. Verse 5, it's not rude. It doesn't act in an unbecoming way toward others by insisting on its own way. You remember how the Corinthians were insisting that they should get to exercise their freedoms, their rights, regardless if it caused a weaker brother to stumble? And love is not irritable or provoked to anger. Oh man, this is one that hits me right between the eyes. It's not resentful. Or a a record keeper of wrongs. You remember what the Corinthians were doing? They were suing one another. And third, love is not friendly toward evil. It's not tolerant of evil to those that it loves. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing or in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Remember how the Corinthians were boasting In that guy that had his own stepmother, they saw it as some sort of trophy of grace. Love doesn't do that. Love is patient and kind, even when under pressure, not acting selfishly, proudly, or in any way that is tolerant of evil in other people. But here's the question. How long... Does that last? How long is long-suffering? Let's pick it up in verse 7. Paul says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. There it is. Brotherly love never ends. It never quits. It is resilient. It is tenacious. It is unconquerable. It's untiringly patient and kind. And it resiliently avoids selfishness, pride, and all tolerance of evil. Now, brothers and sisters, is this not the love we see in the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't He the embodiment of this? A patience and kindness that never quits, never ends. You know, when I think about him walking around Israel with those 12 yahoos that he had, 
I'm sorry, that's the, if you really look at the Greek carefully, the word translated disciple means Yahoo. I mean, you've read the Gospels. Don't you think he'd like to just take them on, throw them right off the cliff? I mean, these guys are really a pain in the neck. And yet, what patience, what kindness. And that's how he responds to us, isn't it? We're the yahoos. And when that love is shed abroad in our hearts through faith in Christ, this is the very same love that believers are to show to one another. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A life of patience and kindness. Sacrificial love. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, who wouldn't want to be in a relationship with people like that? Who wouldn't want to be married to somebody like that? Who doesn't want to be a person like that? Increasingly conformed to the image of our beautiful Savior. I want to ask you, isn't it just refreshing to think about this love? Behold this love. You know, Jonathan Edwards said in a series of sermons on charity and its fruits that heaven is a place of love. That's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. We're going to be loving one another. And it's, it's cathartic, isn't it? It's, it's therapeutic just to think about how wonderful it is. His love to us and then this love that we're to show to one another. A love that, by the way, was first experienced from our older brother. It's a, it's a brotherly love. Now that beauty, this love, its beauty, is critical to the church's well-being and the well-being of our very souls. And here's why. Brotherly love does four things. It summarizes our duty to God. It protects our unity in the church. It validates our mission to the world. And it enables us to pass the final exam on that day of judgment on true faith. We want to look at all four of those quickly. First, our summary duty to God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Familiar passage, but just trying to package it in a way that's helpful to you this morning. Matthew 22, I'll pick it up in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's a familiar passage. I want you to notice that Jesus summarizes the entire Old Testament law into two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and to love your neighbors yourself. Now flip over with me quickly to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Let's pick it up right in verse 8 of Romans 13. 
Romans 13 and verse 8. Here's what Paul says. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. You're allowed to pay off all your liabilities. Have no liabilities on your balance sheet except one. It's a perpetual liability to love one another. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Did you catch that? The one who loves another. Who's the another? Member of the church. Believer in Christ. The one who loves that person has fulfilled the law. And here he's going to give his justification for that. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I want you to observe from those verses two things. First, that obeying the second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, is fulfilling the law. He said it twice in that passage. To obey the second commandment is to fulfill the law. And you should say to me, what about the first commandment? Isn't that one the greatest commandment? Well, yes, of course it is. But to fulfill the second commandment is to fulfill the first commandment. How do you know somebody's fulfilling the first commandment? Just because they say they are? No, that's not good enough. There has to be proof, a tangible demonstration, as we'll see in a minute. So, fulfilling the law is obeying the second commandment. The one who loves Christ's body loves Christ. The one who loves God's people loves God. And to the one who loves himself, he's the one who loves, the one who loves God's people as himself is the one who loves God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. Now second, I want you to notice that neighbor in this passage, and I would argue in the entire New Testament, refers to our neighbor in Christ. Since loving one another is equated to loving your neighbor. And this is certified later on in Romans. We'll just look at it for a minute here. Over the years I've shared this enough, but uh, look, at, look at Romans chapter 15 with me, if you would. It says in verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. He's talking about within the church. The one who is weak in faith, the one who is strong in faith. Chapter 14 was all about that. Now he's summarizing. Then he says in verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Please his neighbor for his edification. That's clearly talking about believers. Our neighbor is our fellow believer. To love your neighbor as yourself is to love your neighbor in Christ. That's the meaning. That's the fulfillment in the New Testament. So our summary duty in life is to love one another as ourselves. Or as Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. It's John 13, 34. And by the way, it becomes new because it flows from the new covenant in His blood, which writes that second great commandment on our hearts, enabling us to obey it. 
Now, this leads to the second thing that brotherly love accomplishes, which is guarding and preserving the unity of the church. Look again at Romans chapter 15 from a different angle. Verse 1, Romans 15 and verse 1. I'll just read verse 1. Again, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You know, when I read that, you know what I think about? Something our church just experienced over the last three years. Well, I guess two years. It seems like ten years. One word. What is it? COVID. Do you know how many different points of view were represented by this body? And how many meetings the elders had trying to navigate those different points of view? Some people wouldn't consider coming unless we had a mask mandate. This is when we had some freedoms. Others wouldn't consider coming if we had a mask mandate. Some wanted the mask mandate to continue even after we were free not to have the mask mandate. I mean, I could go on and on. But you know what was the key in getting us through that as a body of Christ? You know what was the key? We decided not to make that an issue of fellowship. I've been in churches all over the country that split over that very issue. They split. And God in His grace helped us to stay unified. And you know how we did? we decided to make that a secondary issue. To not make that some test of orthodoxy. And that's what has to be done. That's what's being urged in Romans 15.1. Let weaker brothers have their convictions. Now they're not allowed to impose those convictions on the stronger brother. And the stronger brother is not allowed to look down their nose at the weaker brother. And it's all designed to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We just decide those things aren't important. You like the Red Sox. I'm okay with that. I like the Yankees. You have to be okay with that. (laughs) You see, love is the lubricant that keeps bodily friction at a minimum. There's going to be friction. There's no way of getting around it but it keeps bodily friction. It keeps marital friction at a minimum. That's its design. First Peter says that love covers a multitude of sins. Yes, it just decides to overlook them. It decides to not nitpick. That's different from scenarios that need discipline. So don't confuse that with 1 Corinthians 13. Now that leads us to a third profound purpose which brotherly love serves as a validation for the message that fuels our mission, which is to convert people from every nation, make disciples of every nation. Now remember John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, verse 35 says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How? How do they know? When the world looks upon us, how does it know that we are disciples of Christ? We are followers and believers of Christ. One thing, if you love one another. That's the test. That's what validates our message. That's what keeps people from 
dismissing us as hypocrites. So brotherly love summarizes our duty to God. It preserves our unity in the Spirit, and it validates our mission to the world. And finally, it enables us to pass the final exam on true faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Turn to 1 John chapter 3. passage that Dave read in our scripture reading this morning. I'm only going to read one verse, verse 14. 1 John 3, verse 14. Apostle John says this, We know, we know, that's an important word to the Apostle John. It occurs 35 times in this little epistle. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Well, how do we know that, John? Oh, okay, I'll tell you. Because we love the brothers. We know that we're Christians. How do you know that you're actually a Christian? John says, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, John says, abides in death. So how do we know that we've been saved? That we've passed out of death into life? It's because... We're patient and kind. Not perfectly. Uh, When we mess up, we take ownership for it. Unilateral responsibility. I'm sorry, I was impatient. It doesn't matter what you did. I'm responsible for being impatient. I'm responsible for being unkind. It doesn't matter what you've done to me. But in general, our overarching pattern not perfection, is that we're patient and kind toward the brethren. We're not selfish or proud or tolerant of evil in their lives. Now, I want you to notice that the test is not love for one's family. I know you don't like to hear that. I know that just almost seems anti-family when I say it. I mean, I have five kids. I have one wife. I have 15 grandkids. I like them all. Most of the time. (laughs) And they tolerate me. But it's not my love for them that marks me as a Christian. No, no. What did Jesus say? Even, Even the Gentiles love their own. See, there's nothing credible and certainly nothing incredible about loving your family. You and I have been hardwired in the image of God to love our own families. It's called survival of the species. No, no, no. It's not love for one's family that marks you as a Christian. It's love for God's family, our eternal brothers and sisters. You may not be in heaven with all the members of your family. Parents, brothers, sisters, even children, grandkids. But you're going to spend eternity with your fellow believers. That's your true family. That's what the Bible says. Remember when Jesus was queried on that? Your mother, your brothers and sisters, they're out out here waiting for you. Who are my mother and brothers? sisters, those who do the will of God, Christians. That's my family. 
And it's love for that family that marks me as a true believer. Paul said in Galatians 5 that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. That is a working through love kind of faith. That's the kind of faith that justifies. Accordingly, when we all appear before the king at the end of the age, only one question will be asked on that final exam to determine our eternal our eternal destiny. And you know what that question is? Did you love the brethren? That's the only question. Turn to Matthew chapter 25 with me, please. This is not works righteousness. This is the fruit of Christ's work in your life. It's the fruit of the root of saving faith. And listen to what Jesus says. Pick it up in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What separates the sheep, Christians, from the goats, non-Christians, is love. Love for Christ as manifested in love for Christ's church. Even the least and lowliest of them. You see, brotherly love is more beautiful and more critical than anything on this earth. And it follows follows that no goal should be higher and no force stronger in directing our lives than to love one another. And yet our love, it can grow flat. And our affections can grow cold. So what's to be done? 
What can we do to revitalize our love for one another? Or to say it another way, what's the only reasonable response to something so beautiful, something so utterly weighty? It's a lifelong commitment to love the brethren fervently from the heart. And that commitment is addressed in at least three ways in the New Testament. And I close with these three. First, a commitment to brotherly love can be framed as an overarching purpose in life, pressing on toward the prize of our final resurrection, as Philippians 3 says. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pressing on toward the goal of being completely transformed, of being redeemed, of being resurrected, when I will love God and love His people perfectly. And so it starts with intention, with purpose. And the question is, having embraced that purpose, yes, I'm going to press on in love, I'm going to press on toward love, perfect love, how do you do it? Two things, two ways. First, by fervent prayer for that final resurrection, for the redemption of our bodies. You know what Romans 8 calls that prayer? Groaning. Groaning. That's just a visceral term for prayer. Creation is groaning for it, the redemption of our bodies. The Holy Spirit is groaning for it, the redemption of our bodies. They both want the curse to be finally lifted. And true believers who are still pummeled by sin's presence, groan for the redemption of their bodies, when that curse will be finally lifted and will finally be conformed fully to Christ. Now such fervent prayer by those who have already been delivered, that sets us up, that helps us to move out with this critical commitment to love the brethren which is, I think, laid out beautifully in Romans chapter 12. Turn there with me, if you would. Familiar verse. It's kind of the upshot of the whole book of Romans, which tells you how weighty it really is. I appeal to you, therefore, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, as we purpose to press on toward brotherly love, we must not only pray fervently for the completion of that transformation, but we must daily present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, you know what that means? It means that we're in a perpetual state of yieldedness to God's will, which, of course, centers on loving His people as Christ loved us. And I want to encourage you with something. That presentation is not beyond those who are in Christ and in whom the Spirit dwells. That presentation is not too difficult for you. In fact, turn back to Romans chapter 6, where we got a sneak preview 
of 12.1, starting in Romans 6 and verse 12. Listen to what he says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Did you catch that phrase? Sin will have no dominion over you. It is no longer your master, beloved. You have been delivered not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. And you are now free to make this presentation to God. Lord, I'm presenting myself to you today. Here I am again, Lord. I'm presenting myself to you. I'm yielding myself to you that you might enable me by your grace and by your strength to love my brothers as I ought, even as your son loved me. Brothers and sisters, this commitment to love the brothers, this command to brotherly love is not only our solemn duty and most important commitment, it's our highest privilege. Imagine, we get to love Christ's bride, this bride that he purchased, not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood. So let us continue to behold love's breathtaking beauty was both seen in our glorious older brother who laid down his life for his friends and is seen in the body of Christ as believers work tirelessly toward being patient and kind with one another. And let us remember love's unrivaled importance as the essence of our duty to God as the key to our unity in the church, as the validation of our mission to the world, which Caleb will be talking to us about next week, and as the only way to pass that great final exam on the day of God's judgment. And may such beholding and remembering rejuvenate our zeal to press on toward our final redemption, praying fervently and presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice to love His Son's church by serving one another, by financially supporting one another, by forgiving and forbearing one another, by speaking the truth to one another, by not letting the sun set on our anger toward one another, by preferring one another, and by confronting one another when the other is in sin. CMC, let us commit ourselves afresh here at the beginning of this new ministry year 
to loving one another fervently from the heart. A very practical thing that you could do is sign up for community group. I know of no better way practically to engage the body. And you say, well, I, just, I don't do community group. Well, I'm challenging you to change your mind so that you can be involved in a material way in the lives of your brothers and sisters where we pray for one another and we uphold one another. I'm telling you, it's the lifeblood of, of, our, of our church during the week. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands a commitment to brotherly love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, how it instructs us, how it holds us accountable, how it reminds us of your expectations for us how it so beautifully portrays your love for us in your Son. We ask you to give us grace that we might love one another fervently from the heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.